Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. As America recovered from its terrible civil war, unrest was stirring on the Great Plains. As the United States pushed westward, recent railroad construction brought on a new conflict with a new enemy. Roman Nose, a warrior of the Cheyenne people, had set out to defend his ancestral home from the Americans and soon became the face of resistance in the region. In September of 1868, a party of 50 U.S. soldiers came under attack on a tiny island on the Arikari River and for three harrowing days exchanged fire with a party of warriors that outnumbered them nearly 10 to 1. Although the struggles on the plains would continue in the years to come, this battle remains a remarkable example of heroism and bravery. On this episode, we discuss the Battle of Beecher Island. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season 5 of the series, we're discussing Battlegrounds, the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most epic showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website for news, updates, and events, bradykreitzer.com. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash bradyjkreitzer. A lot of people are. It's growing, proud to say. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Enough of the pleasantries. Uh, let's get back to it. Today, we're talking about a very fascinating topic and one that maybe some of you aren't familiar with. I know we have a lot of listeners in the great Midwest. Uh, so if you live in Kansas, Arkansas, uh, Nebraska, Oklahoma, or Colorado. This one is a short drive for you to visit. And by short drive, I mean uh, hours and hours in a car. The Midwest amazes me. I'm sort of an East Coast guy. I live just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh's kind of the last East Coast city. Uh, because anything beyond it, you get to Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, that becomes very Midwestern. But Pittsburgh isn't so Midwestern. But what amazes me about the Midwest is that you can just drive for hours. I mean, hours. And never see a hill uh, or a mountain. Uh, and and this is normal for you folks. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, but it's beautiful country as well. So, um, anytime I have a chance to go out that way, I'm very happy. But we're going to talk about the Midwest today. Especially the Midwest immediately following the American Civil War. We tend to think of the Civil War as the hard part. And hey, rightfully so. I mean, 700,000 Americans killed by their fellow countrymen. Countless amounts of damage done to the country, both physically and psychologically. I understand that. But one of the things I like to talk to my students about uh, is the years immediately following the Civil War. Because even though you have uh, literally... Uh, millions of Americans wounded in that war. In a lot of ways, the aftermath is much more difficult. 
We call this period Reconstruction, and, and even though the subject of today's episode is about an Indian battle that occurs in Colorado, Reconstruction is a big part of this. So I wavered on how to build this episode, how to craft this episode. Um, we will talk about the Battle of Beecher Island, but we have to keep it in context. So as historians, we're always wrestling with that challenge. How do we frame our argument in a, in a strong way? So let's talk a little bit first about Reconstruction uh, as it pertains to the world our battle occurs in. And I think the easiest way to do that is just to discuss how America, after the Civil War, is really caught in a great and mighty push and pull. It's political, it's personal, but it's very real. And that push and pull is, what is the new direction of the country? Obviously, the Confederacy believed that a white supremacist slaveocracy was the way America should go. Well, they tried that, and they lost. But what North and South now debate in the aftermath of the war are big questions like, what is the role of the freed slave? And what is America's future going to be, North or South? Well, they both agree, believe it or not, it's going to be West. Not just anywhere, but beyond the Mississippi. That land, they believe, should be America's to take. And they want to build quick and efficient ways to get there to do that. Now, when you examine the West, again, it's a beautiful place, but I would challenge you to look at it without major highways, without freeways. If you take the vaunted uh, New York to L.A. flight, you know exactly what it's like. You get a bird's eye view of it, but much of the time, it can be so monotonous from 35,000 feet. Uh, it's just endless flat plains, and, you know, from a historian's vantage point, whenever we want to talk about how that affects a people, and how they live, and why they live, there's actually a lot there. I mean, yeah, we get excited about flying over the Rockies or something, but before you get there, you can see a whole lot of what looks like nothingness, but it really isn't. You know, the flyover states they talk about. Uh, get on the ground, see them for yourself. But this is the West, that people are talking about in the 1860s, 1864, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, the 1870. That's our range today. And this is the area you first have to conquer before you can get to the really fun stuff in what is today Nevada and Utah uh, and California. So this is where our story is going to take place. And this is the battleground ideologically and militarily regarding the future of our country, the future of the United States of America. This is going to be fought by, by really three groups. There will be the political fight between the Northern Liberal Republicans and the Southern Conservative Democrats. And there will also be the military fight, the on-the-ground fight, between the emerging United States and its armed forces and the proud and defiant people of the Great Plains. So let's first talk about exactly where this story takes place. If there's an easy way to frame this, using some basic geography, and there really typically isn't, in this case, we do have a really easy framework. This occurs between two different river valleys. In the north, running from east to west, basically through the state of Nebraska, you have the Platte River. In the south, framing the lower portion of our story, going through parts of Oklahoma and Kansas, you have the Arkansas River, or as some call it, the Arkansas River. Of course, we'll go with Arkansas. 
But what that frames is a piece of territory that is considered to be very ancient and very sacred and very important to many different peoples who grew up there and spent their lives there and spent generations there, the people of the Great Plains, particularly the Cheyenne people. Now, the Cheyenne view that as sacred hunting grounds. It's an area where they hunt bison and other small game, and it's an area that is directly in the path of the new and emerging United States of America. Between those two rivers, the focus of our story will be a smaller river system flowing east to west that branches off into many different creeks and streams and smaller rivers as it moves west. I'd like to compare it to a large feather uh, laying on its side going east to west. We call that the Republican River. The tributaries, you probably know them, the Ted Cruz River, the Rand Paul River, the Donald Trump River. Just kidding. Um, no, the tributaries all have their own little names and local lore and importance as well. But this is the area we're dealing with. We can use the term Great Plains to really mean anything from Texas all the way to Canada. This is where we're focusing in. And this is where the American Railway Juggernaut is going to start to move. Now, with that important information in place, we do have to talk about a little bit of domestic politics back east for all of this to jive together. Immediately following the Civil War, two things happened that really drastically altered the military in the United States. One in its physical dimensions and size, and the other in the way it's perceived. The first is a dramatic decrease in the size of the military. After uh, hundreds of thousands of people serve during the Civil War, it's decided by American policymakers that we no longer really have a threat that would require our military to be so big. Many of the men who fought during the Civil War were volunteers or short-term um, uh, soldiers. Many of them want to go home and start their life, or at least try and rebuild it, both north and south. But others do stay behind. And this is going to be the core that makes up the new military as we know it. I've seen some figures that say that the military was cut down to basically 25% uh, of its original size. At some points, it'll go down to almost 10% its original size during the Civil War. Now, for us, we consider this peacetime in 1866, in 1867, and 1868. But if you stayed in the military, you knew it was no such thing. So you have a military that, three years earlier than the time period we're dealing with here, 1868, had uh, many, many, many more people in it. But now, it's really whittled down to uh, the lifers, I think you could say. The people who just cannot function outside of the uh, the martial life. One of those people is a guy named George Armstrong Custer. And you'll know him for different reasons. He was known as one of the finest horsemen in the Union Army. He is a cavalry officer. I mean, he can't work in civilian life. So when the war ends, he stays behind. He stays uh, in the U.S. Army and his legend grows. He's a really good example to use because for many people, the Michigan man, George Armstrong Custer, is really the only reference they have to the post-war army. But he sticks around, because again, without service, in his mind, what is he? 
and we can't really answer that well. That's his decision. But the other thing that really changes here is how the South views its role in the country. Again, everybody wants to move west, but how do you do it, and what do you take with you? While the Southern vision of America was lost with the signing of peace at Appomattox Courthouse, but uh, this debate will continue in different ways. One of the things that Southern states start to do, particularly after the passage of the 13th Amendment, ending slavery, and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, is begin uh, exerting their individual states' rights to make whatever laws they deem to be fit for the betterment of their state. And most of these laws deal with circumventing the 13th Amendment. That is, uh, treating freed slaves as uh, equal members of society. They do things that are now the stuff of legend in terms of their severity. Things like making laws designed to uh, criminalize very simple behavior um, to keep the, the the freed slave feeling like they were still slaves. We'll put it we'll put it that easy. Um, you can't walk on the same side of the street as a white woman. That's punishable uh, by jail time and and often death. Um, don't even think about voting. These kind of things. So one of the things the new president who takes after Lincoln dies, Andrew Johnson, begins to do, uh, and people after him. Uh, is uh, really tighten the squeeze on the South. Now, Johnson, not so much, but as he's from Tennessee. And one of the ways that Northern liberals do this uh, is by passing a series of laws which effectively divide the American South into military districts. They basically say, the federal government basically says, you're no longer states, you no longer have state government, the military will be in full command of your states, uh, and our military officers will be your uh, executives, effectively. It was crazy. It was full-scale military occupation of the American South. And again, divided into five districts. Uh, the Carolinas were a district. Virginia was a district. Uh, Florida, Louisiana was a district. Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas was a district. Texas was a district. Again, these were all Americans who felt that the federal government was squeezing them for uh, passing these what we call black codes uh, and really committing many atrocities in the South. And what you had in the South was martial law. What does that have to do with our topic today? Well, it has a lot. Because the people calling the shots down South, you have military uh, units marching down the streets in the South. Again, martial law, military control of a civilian area. One of the things that really affects us are who the generals are after this. Because Southerners hated, passionately, Northern officers who served in the Civil War. And it was these generals, guys like Phil Sheridan, guys like Winfield Scott Hancock, who we'll talk about, guys uh, of big names uh, and noted Unionists that would effectively be controlling the destinies of the Southern districts in the American South. Very fascinating time, very messy time period. But while this is going on, this larger debate about moving west is going on as well. And that's where we can talk about the Cheyenne peoples, their view of the world, and some of the major figures within them. If you were a native person of any tribal lineage in the 1860s, uh, you had a system that worked really well for you, and it was a system that was deeply threatened uh, by the uh, emerging and expanding United States. 
So what is their system? Well, their system basically was one shared with all of the people of the Great Plains. And it was a system of hunting the mighty American buffalo. Subsisting off of it and having what amounts to a pretty good life. See, the buffalo moved in an enormous herd, thousands of buffalo, and the buffalo is a huge animal. So typically, the herd would move north to south seasonally. When the herd did come through, all of the uh, people of the Great Plains would hunt the animals. Uh, they would use their uh, bones for weapons. They'd eat their meat. They'd use their furs for clothing. It was a very efficient system, and it worked really well. When the Americans came in, they began changing dramatically that way of life. One of the ways that they did it was by exterminating the buffalo to effect effectively exterminate the people who rely on it. Uh, we could call this genocide, but at any rate, uh, that's a little bit in the future from us. But clearly there's a conflict here. And clearly there's going to need to be a resolution. And it probably won't be a peaceful resolution. You see, one of the things the Americans tried to do as they moved west was draft a series of treaties with the native tribes and chieftains in the region. And these treaties, and there's a number of them, always carried a lot of promise for the native peoples, always gave them some piece of territory that will always be theirs, and almost always ended up being broken by the United States as the commerce began to flow westward. So if you saw a white person come at you with a treaty in the 1860s, you'll have people who want to sign it, especially elders in the tribal societies. Uh, they'll value this. They'll say this is not ideal, but it does virtually give us the best deal we could get. And they'll sign it, and it would be broken shortly after. This is a whole other discussion, but the natives called it pen and ink witchcraft, and it had been going on for about now... 200 years in North America. One of the people who was uh, always included in these treaties was the Cheyenne. Now the Cheyenne, a little bit of background on them, are a really interesting case study and a very powerful force on the Great Plains. They are a warrior peoples. They are some of the finest horsemen, not just North America, but the world had ever known. They controlled the animal with grace and efficiency in a way that was distinctly different than the European style of riding. So whenever Europeans or Eastern Americans would see these native peoples on these horses, they were always quite taken by it until war broke out and then they were usually killed by it. The Cheyenne were an especially uh, powerful group on the Great Plains because they were, if nothing else, a society based on war. They were a warrior culture. They divided themselves into seven groups. Uh, the fastest way and the easiest way to become politically powerful in the Cheyenne world was to prove that you were a great warrior. Now, there were chieftains. There was a hereditary element to it. They ultimately made most of the decisions. But if you could be a fantastic soldier and leader on the battlefield in the Cheyenne world, there was a place for you at the top of the food chain. And one of these figures that comes out of this time period, at the age of about 30, that really rises to the top, 
is a man, as Americans we call Roman Nose. His original Cheyenne name was Wokini. Some call him the Hook Nose. But he was one of these people. Again, uh, just over 30 years old. That really proved himself to be someone who did not take kindly to false treaties. Uh, that was uh, always looking for a fight. And that was very brave on the battlefield. Roman Nose, or Wakini, uh, was, by all accounts, a very strapping physical presence. A lot of the Eastern Americans tended to be men of smaller frame. Uh, these were not giants. These were not the kind of people you see in the NFL playoffs. By the way, most of us are, are crying in our beers because of the outcome of the NFL playoffs. Some of us are still celebrating, so good for you. Uh, and if you're not, I feel your pain. But at any rate, uh, Roman Nose was a physical specimen, well over six foot tall, heavily muscled, uh, very effective on the battlefield. The Americans recognized him immediately as a threat, one of the troublesome Cheyenne. But many people, especially younger members of the Cheyenne tribe, looked at Roman Nose as someone they could follow. A pattern emerges in the 1860s, as more Americans begin to move into the West. And the pattern basically looks like this, especially, again, the area we're talking about, this area between the Platte River in the North, Nebraska, uh, and the Arkansas River in the South, Oklahoma and Kansas. Uh, and, and, the, and the pattern basically went like this. A treaty would be offered. Many of the elders would, would say that's a deal they should take. Many of the younger warriors were beholden to them, but believed it would be a raw deal in the end. They believed that only warfare could solve this problem. So what begins to happen is many of the prominent leaders of the Cheyenne, politically, uh, maybe these peaceful leaders, begin to vacate that important area we're discussing between the Platte and Arkansas. Families will go with them. But many of the people that stay behind, the people the Americans consider to be difficult, or obstinate, or defiant, would be these bands of warriors led by a figure like Roman Nose. So, how does Roman Nose strike? Well, as the railways expand, small settlements and towns expand, these are towns that are not well defended. They're not well defended because, again, the military is very small. New military bases are being built. But Roman Nose and his Cheyenne warriors and his allies from different tribes. No, you can raid these cities, destroy them, burn them, and that is one way that you stop the expansion of the United States. That is a system that's worked in the native world, again now for 200 years, by the time you get to 1865. And it's a system that Western militaries, whether it be Americans now, or British and French in the past, had a very difficult time contending with. But this is the state of things. In the 1860s, after the Civil War, in the Republican River Valley, between, again, the Platte River in the north and the Arkansas River in the south. One of the other things about the Cheyenne I think is important is that there is a very intense spiritual element to not only, not only the way they view themselves, but also the way they view war. I think a lot of academics when they talk about the Cheyenne, really any of the warriors of the Great Plains, 
I think we would tend to call these superstitions. Um, and that's, I think, a very dismissive way of discussing it. Because the Cheyenne, especially, will do a lot of things that to outsiders will look unnecessary or backwards or trivial. But there are deep and intense spiritual reasons, reasons of faith, that they do the things they do. One of the groups that Roman knows represents are a group of the Cheyenne called the Dog Soldiers. You might have heard of the Cheyenne Dog Soldiers. And there was, again, a lot of symbolism in that decision. But Roman knows was told at a fairly young age uh, that he would be powerful, he would be a great leader, but there's certain things that he had to do, uh, or at least he had to avoid, and he would be successful in war throughout. Most of these had to do with uh, a complete disregard of Western weapons, of Western values and practices. Okay? For example, uh, he was told by a spiritual advisor he would be a great military leader so long as he didn't shake hands in the way of an American or the white man. Also, he could never eat food prepared in any metal vessel or container because that's something the Americans do. Now again, the idea was if you avoid those things, you wear the war bonnet, you will be untouchable. Literally, he was told, bullets wouldn't hurt him. And he held fast to that. And again, call it superstition, but realize there was something much more at a much deeper level with these practices than just, you know, goofy things people do before a sporting event. You know, athletes won't you know, not change their socks or always wear a certain necklace or uh, like in the movie Major League, have all kind of trinkets, you know, um, in their lockers. This isn't like that. It's more intense than that. Uh, but it's there. So this leads to a climate of very intense hatred amongst white communities and Indian communities. And we've seen this boil over before. A few years earlier, it's something called the Sand Creek Massacre. Uh, a group of militiamen, Americans, annihilated an entire village of native peoples because they were retaliating for a previous raid while the people they killed were women and children. We call it the Sand Creek Massacre. It was a horrifying scar in the history of our country and one that the native peoples of the Great Plains looked to as the standard of why you can't deal uh, with the Americans because that's what you'll get. Roman knows becomes a hero in the aftermath of that event. But this will have a lot to do with decisions made by the Americans, American policy. So again, politics are important, reconstruction is important, and I want you to know this. The man who's in command of what's called the Department of the Missouri is a name, if you're a Civil War buff, that will be familiar to you. He's one of these career lifers. He's one of these guys that uh, goes on after the Civil War. Even though many people think, you know, service ends then in 1865. It's a man named Winfield Scott Hancock. Winfield Scott Hancock, you may know him, one of the heroes of Gettysburg, fought at many of the campaigns throughout the, uh, the American Civil War. He is given the post. Deal with these Indians primarily uh, in the Department of the Missouri and subdue them. He's not given a post 
in the American South. Remember what generals do in the American South. They rule over their military districts. They suppress the southern people uh, in strict military control of civilian regions. And that wasn't an envious job either. But in the years immediately following Lincoln's assassination, President Andrew Johnson has to juggle both of these things. Now, we don't give Johnson a lot of credit. He doesn't really deserve a lot of credit. This man had an eighth grade education. He was only selected to be vice president by Lincoln because he was from Tennessee. He was a southerner and he was literally the last southerner left in Washington. He was a unionist. He supported the union staying together uh, more than secession. His feelings of slavery were different. And when Lincoln's killed, this knucklehead becomes president. I'm sorry, I feel very strongly about this. Uh, but he wanted to make sure the people in the South, military leaders that is, were doing the right things to suppress the Southerners in the right way. And one of the leaders of that military district was a guy named Philip Sheridan, uh, a foul-mouthed uh, Union cavalry commander called a destroyer general, good friends with Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. And he was just not cutting the mustard in the South. And on the same token, Winfield Scott Hancock, as the leader of the Department of the Missouri, wasn't really doing much to suppress the Indians either. He did have a, a raid on an empty village. He burned many empty homes. Sort of as a warning to the tribal peoples. You must subdue, submit. But there wasn't a lot of effectiveness there. People back east were losing favor with, Han with Hancock. They believed he was mistreating the Indian peoples. It was just a bad scene. And again, the politics of this is important. So Andrew Johnson, in his infinite wisdom, flips Phil Sheridan and Winfield Scott Hancock. And you couldn't have uh, generals with more different temperaments than those two. Sheridan was a mean, kind of scruffy guy. Short fuse, short temper. Uh, Hancock was a little more open-minded. But with that switch, Hancock becomes one of these uh, martial law generals in the South. Uh, and Sheridan, with his giant cigar, uh, goes west. Things are going to be changing in a big way. When Sheridan comes west to take over the Department of Missouri, he's met by the governor of Colorado. And the governor of Colorado effectively says to him, we have this roving band of, of Indians the Cheyenne have destroyed numerous villages. You need to launch an expedition against him. And that's what Phil Sheridan will do. He sets up camp in Kansas, military bases there, and he calls upon one of his most trusted lieutenants, a man named George Alexander Forsyth, to take a, a group of uh, horseback soldiers, cavalry, into the region and find these marauders, find these troublesome people. This is now August of 1868. Now, who were the men that he takes with him? He actually handpicks 48 men from a number of different forts in the region, and he gives them weapons that were state-of-the-art, the Spencer Repeating Rifle. There are very few firearms, by the way, that I get really excited about. Uh, you know, for me, uh, it's, you know, you fire one pistol, you fire them all, but uh, the Spencer Repeating Rifle is such a historic gun. Uh, it was reasonably accurate, fast to load, it was light to carry, a cavalry commander's dream. But he'll pick these 48 men from around the region, some of them veterans of the Civil War. One of them, a lieutenant named Frederick Beecher, that name will be important, uh, he wrote the Battle of Gettysburg, 
and they set out on September 5th, 1868. Now, it's a very imprecise uh, uh, effort to find Indian bands, uh, warrior groups, because, again, they're mobile, and they're fantastic horsemen, and they move very quickly, they know the landscape. Most of the time you find them is when you don't really want to. They usually find you first, and it's usually an ambush. And in the morning of September 10th, 1868, you begin to see that happen. Now, about 13 miles east uh, of Fort Wallace, there's a railroad being built, the Kansas Pacific Railroad. There had been a raid there earlier. Forsyth believes Roman Nose and his Cheyenne dog soldiers and their allies must be in the region. So they follow the trail they believe that they used into the state of Colorado. And they find them just outside of a town today called Ray, Colorado. Now at that time, it's not there. But they have a sense they can find them. The area they move into, remember we talked about the Republican River, this river in the middle of the two bigger rivers we talked about, like a large feather branching off. The area they approach uh, is a place called the Arikari Fork, or the Arikari River, which is an offshoot of the Republican. It's not a deep river, not a river by East Coast standards, that's for sure. Uh, easily passable on foot. But they're in this region uh, seeking them out. On the morning of September 17th, again, they've been searching for a while, Forsyth and his men see in the distance uh, a silhouette of Indian warriors on horseback. And fighting breaks out immediately. There aren't many places for the American soldiers to go. The one place they can locate is a very small island in the middle of the Arikari River. Again, this is not the as they say in Robin Hood Men in Tights, this ain't exactly the Mississippi. This is a small river, but Forsyth puts his men on that river, and they take cover. And the fighting begins. Who else is leading them but Roman knows? So again, about 48 men with Forsyth on an island, not very big, shooting off the island across the bank, completely surrounded by Roman knows and his men. There is no escape to be had. Forsyth knows he's in a horrifying position. He's entirely surrounded. He's horribly outnumbered. And it seems like his men are caught dead to rights. One of the other challenges in dealing with Indian battles like this one, this will become known as the Battle of Beecher Island, is that it's very imprecise. This is not the Civil War. We don't know how many people were in uh, Roman Nose's division, as though he was fighting at Chancellorsville or Petersburg or something. Um, it varies. Some of Forsyth's men said there was 200, others as much as 1,000. We don't know. We'll split the difference, say 500, surrounding this group of 50. Very difficult. Very treacherous. Very terrible. In the earliest part of the first day of the battle... Many of the Indians began taunting them, shooting at them. Men were being shot. Men were being hit. Indian scouts realized how difficult it would be. How, precar how precarious their opponent's situation was. One of the great elements of Roman Nose, in terms of his leadership quality, was that he often led from the front. 
He, that was literally true. He would charge from the front. He would often ride in front of his men, back and forth on his horse, to take fire. To draw fire away from his men and toward him. Because he knew. He knew. He could not be harmed by American bullets. Remember the element of uh, mysticism we're dealing with here. Well, unfortunately for Roman Nose, earlier that morning, he was actually fed a piece of bread from a pan made of metal. He didn't realize it at the time. After he ate it, he said, I am now vulnerable. He tried to spend the early part of this battle, the Battle of Beecher Island, on the riverbank behind his men, but his men began to accuse him of cowardice. So he ran out front as always, and of course he was wounded. He was dropped immediately. He was drug away by his men. He would be dead uh, by about 10 p.m. that night. His death is probably the most notable thing that happens at this battle. As the sun goes down, the situation's horrifying. George A. Forsyth is surrounded. He himself is wounded. His men dig out a shallow pit on this island for him to sit in. If he died, by the way, that would be his grave. But Forsyth orders two scouts to flee from the island. They're surrounded. It'd be a tough run, but they'll do it. Go back to the nearest fort, which was called Fort Wallace, which was not close. We're talking 70 miles, 110 kilometers, and get help. Those men will leave. Time will pass. Forsyth doesn't know if they made it or not. He can't believe that he sends two more. Those two men will never be seen again. Those two men will never be seen again. The original two scouts will get to Fort Wallace. It will take them several days. Help will be on the way. And the group that will be coming to help them are members of the 10th Cavalry Regiment, a group we call the Buffalo Soldiers. If you know anything about the Buffalo Soldiers, these are all African Americans. And that's an amazing story on its own, because they do turn out to be the heroes of the end of this battle. If you were a black man, there's very little certainty for you in the United States. In the South, prospects were grim. In the North, you were unwelcome to say the least. But if you served in the military, you would be paid not as much as white soldiers, but you would have steady work. Nobody wanted to go fight Indians out west. But here was an opportunity for you to do so. Now, on the third day of the battle, the scene for Forsyth and his men became something that is rarely seen in the annals of 19th century military history. This is what captivated me about this story. What was an originally hot and fiery battle became a siege. The Indian warriors knew that the Americans couldn't go anywhere. The Indian warriors also knew the Americans were becoming very hard to hit. I mean, Forsyth, the leader himself, was hit twice. And the reason was because the Americans actually killed their horses. Think about this. And laid them on the perimeter of the island to catch the incoming rounds from the Indians firing at them. I mean, it was literally their only defense. The island was covered in black flies, dead rotting horse meat. The only thing the American cavalrymen had to eat was rotten horse flesh, and drink was the muddy water of the Arikaree, which is not something you want to do. Even looking at pictures, it's horrifying. And it was a desperate scene. Now for the Indian warriors, the dog soldiers, the Cheyenne, Roman Nose is dead. He's gone. And they realize, I think, there's very little to gain here. Because as, 
as bad as the scene had been for the Americans, they were actually being pretty effective picking off some of these warriors on horseback and in hiding with their Spencer repeating rifles. Fa fascinating weapon. Very effective. And then in the distance, they themselves saw that reinforcements were coming to save the Americans on the island. So they disengage. They disembark. It would be great if we had a journal if we had one of the warriors saying why they left. I mean, the real specific reason. But again, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that when you study native history, you don't have these sources to fall back on. You have to fall back on oral traditions, mostly. And sometimes you don't have those. And here's one of those cases. The Indians leave, the Cheyenne leave, their allies leave. And the scene that the oncoming buffalo soldiers find is horrendous. Again, rotten flesh, black flies, Forsyth is in terrible condition. They have no uh, food, no water. They're running out of bullets. But they did survive. In the end of the 48 men that were trapped on the island, six will die. Fifteen will be wounded. Forsyth himself. And it's a miraculous event. They set up camp right there. Because, again, even though there was just a battle there, that area was as good as any. Again, the reinforcements, those in relief, the Buffalo Soldiers, they have supplies. And they hang out for a few more days till they go back to Fort Wallace. And the, and, the, and, and the battle is called the Battle of Beecher Island because Lieutenant Frederick Beecher is killed. He's one of the few killed in the battle. Now, I cannot stress to you enough how much Beecher Island is a small, meaningless place in the middle of a vast area. That if you saw it, if you walked by it, if there was no marker, you would think nothing of it. And that's sort of the interesting things about battles, right? I always think battles and battlefields uh, are scars on the landscape. You know, the scars uh, help us to remember that this stuff really happened. You know, you live with scars. You know they're there. Every once in a while you take a peek at it and think, wow, that actually happened so long ago. That's what a battlefield is. And that's what Beecher Island today is. Now, it is a park, and it is marked. When you go there, there isn't much. But I think it gives you a very accurate view of what the site would have looked like uh, in September of 1868. I mean, it's a heroic battle. It's also a horrifying battle. It's also a terrible battle. Uh, and I think so indicative of Indian warfare on the Great Plains. But again, Ray, Colorado, just over the Kansas border. If you're in the area, something worth checking out. And the other thing about this battle is, there isn't a lot of fanfare. This is not Little Bighorn, where George Armstrong Custer will die uh, some eight years later. But Custer does call it, um, and let me get this quote exactly right, the greatest battle on the plains. Uh, that says a lot. The greatest battle on the plains. I mean, in terms of the historical record, the Battle of Beecher Island uh, is where Roman Nose is killed, where Joaquini is killed. But it's one of those things, you know, that tends to get lost, uh, I think, in the, in the larger spectrum of this story. Now, I must be honest with you. One of the reasons I chose this topic, aside from the emails we got from people in Kansas and Colorado and Nebraska that might be interested, uh, is that my academic mentor uh, wrote a book on Beecher Island. It was actually a biography of Forsyth himself. And it's just such a good read. 
It's called The Hero of Beecher Island. I would recommend it to anyone. Now, he has since passed on. It is deeply meaningful to me. I read it every year. It's a way of, you know, feeling close to someone you're not with anymore. But it just amazes me. You know, it's it's a relatively short book, 200 pages, but it just gets it so right. Such a good example of how history can be done. So look it up. The Hero of Beecher Island. Maybe you can visit the site. You know, this is a difficult topic. But it gets to the crux again of the episode. It's this vision of America. Competing visions. A northern vision and a southern vision. But also a vision that we don't talk about enough, which is the vision of America that the native peoples had, that the Cheyenne had, that Roman Nose had. That's a vision that we'll lose. But along the way to that loss, and it's a long and painful one, you have these benchmarks, these battles to keep score. So as always, hit the Facebook page, hit the email, let me know. You pick the next episode. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.